Hi, I'm Thomas Franco, Editor-in-Chief of Volume 34 of the Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy, a premier publication focused on public policy issues that impact Latinx and Hispanic communities in the United States and Puerto Rico. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we'll be joined by Rochelle Garza, a civil rights attorney who has been on the front lines of today's legal battles over immigration, reproductive justice, and the militarization of communities of color. Rochelle is the only woman and the only Latina in the Democratic primary for Texas Attorney General. She has garnered endorsements from the San Antonio Express News, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and Austin American Statesman, representing almost all of the major newspapers in the state. Today, my colleague Victoria Ochoa takes a closer look at Rochelle's remarkable story as an aspiring policymaker and changemaker for all Texans, including the Latinx community. Rochelle, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Victoria. So here you are blazing a trail from the border to Austin. Can you tell us more about the experiences in your life that have motivated and prepared you to pursue public service and civil rights work? Yeah, everything I've ever done is a result of where I grew up and the family I grew up in. My dad was a farmer here in South Texas. Uh, He was one of 13 kids and they picked cotton and okra and (laughs) grew up incredibly humble you know, he became a teacher and then he ended up going to law school after he met my mom and then came back to the Valley and became a judge by the age of 30. So, you know, that work ethic was really big in my household. My mom was an English teacher and a drama teacher. If you ever met her, you would know. (laughs) And, um, you know, she came from a long line of folks from the region as well. And, you know, my grandpa was a World War II veteran and my and her mom was uh, the head of a municipal credit union after she raised her three kids. So, you know, I I think that background, plus the fact that you know, I grew up in a household with a sibling with disabilities and my oldest brother, Robbie, experienced a, a traumatic brain injury during childbirth. And uh, I saw my parents struggle a lot for him. And I knew what it was like to sacrifice for your family, what it was like to advocate for a member of your family and making sure that they were taken care of and got the things that they needed because it really impacted the health of the entire family. And that's, that's really what motivated me to become a lawyer um, and really to fight for people that have been overlooked because I recognize that the health of our communities actually depends on every single one of us being okay. That was so beautifully said. And, you know, I've had the privilege of being able to volunteer and work alongside you and can now see how all of that comes together to make you the public servant and attorney that you are. You know, you're a soon-to-be mom, a daughter, a wife, a Texas woman, a Latina, a civil rights attorney, a South Padre Island enthusiast. I mean, how will you bring your whole self into this role as Texas's next attorney general? I think I think we have to bring our whole selves into public service. I mean, that's really the only way that we're going to address the things that that we need and our communities need. You know, we've never had a woman AG in Texas. We've never had an elected Latina in a statewide race in Texas either. You know, the state is 40% Latino. 
the the vast majority of the growth that we've seen in Texas is a result of of people of color that have grown this state. We need to have that representation in order to address the things that that we need. I'm from the valley. It is rural. You you know this too, as someone who is also from from the region. Um, it's somewhere between rural and urban. Um, yet. You know, we've got a really high poverty rate. It's almost 30%. You know, healthcare is a major issue, a lack of healthcare. I know these communities really well. I know what communities across Texas really need. And those experiences give me the ability to problem solve and be able to address the heart of the issues that people are facing in Texas. So I want to dig a little deeper into that. You know, like you mentioned, you've been on the ground representing vulnerable individuals, including Jane Doe, a pregnant 17-year-old denied the right to choose while in federal immigration detention. And because of your efforts, teens in immigration custody are now given the Garza notice, which informs them of their right to access abortion free of obstruction and retaliation. Can you share what lessons you learned from this advocacy experience and how it has impacted your continued advocacy for choice in Texas? Yeah, I mean, I I was, I think, a few months into my private practice when that case happened. I was practicing law with my brother, Miles, and it, it taught me a lot about the fact that change can come from really unexpected places, that you never know when you're going to be put into a position of really making such a deep impact. I mean, I had no idea when I took on that case, when I first met Jane and I, you know, I saw her, I thought this was going to be resolved really easily. I'm like, there's no way this is going to be as difficult and complicated and frustrating for her and for, you know, for all of the young people that found themselves in immigration detention. But it really taught me about smart advocacy you know, knowing the law is really important as well, but also dealing with federal law and dealing with immigration and, and, and just trying to navigate all of these systems in order to make sure that she got the care she needed and then set up the case such that it could impact so many others that found themselves in her situation later on. It took a Herculean effort is the truth. And it took effort from not only myself, because I was her guardian um, and the, the personal sacrifice, obviously the professional sacrifice that, that I had to put up, but also the sacrifices I saw coming from people in the, from the abortion clinic to the shelter, to the clerk's office that were accepting filings. I mean, there are so many players in this to make that kind of case happen. Um, if you really rally people, you can really make a real change. So it's advocacy, it's litigation skills, but it's also people skills. We were really fortunate to make sure that Jane got the care that she needed, but also to protect so many other young women that were in detention after her was also an incredible experience. I think it's worth mentioning for listeners, and you, I think you kind of emphasize this in your response, but... You know, there's a lot of barriers that you were navigating between federal's very strict state abortion laws, um, federal immigration policy, um, and then judges who might not 
necessarily be sympathetic to the the issues that you're bringing forward on this intersection of immigration and abortion, um, which I think brings to light, um, you know, how hard civil rights attorneys have to work in Texas to navigate these these restrictions, these barriers that are coming from all different levels of government. Can you speak to another instance where you had to navigate barriers at the state level, at the federal level and the judiciary and the ledge um, and how how you came up on top? Yeah, I mean, you know, our original Jane Doe case wasn't the only Jane case I took on. You know, there was a lag between getting the class action certified from the first instance, like from the first case where there was another teen that we were working with. Uh, And when a teen is trying to get access to abortion care in Texas, they have to go through a judicial bypass process uh, to bypass their parents' consent. These teens that are in immigration custody don't have a parent to give them consent. Uh, So uh, you have to go to a district court judge in in the state of Texas and ask for permission. Um, We did that with Jane one, I'll call her Jane one. And then with another Jane that we had, you know, we had to do that again. And this time the federal government did step in and they removed the family law case, which is supposed to be a private case to federal court. And that case, after back and forth, ended up going up to the Fifth Circuit and obviously got a really bad decision out of the Fifth Circuit. And you're going to win sometimes and you're going to lose sometimes. And I think it's just really tough being a lawyer as a general matter um, when you're so invested in helping your clients. And, uh, And you see that sometimes you are unable to fight through a system. And especially during the Trump administration, there were extra barriers to to practicing law. You know, and I I could talk about all the immigration stuff I've done, but I I think, you know, being an immigration lawyer, being a civil rights lawyer, it it can be really challenging, you know, not just navigating the law and doing your best to kind of strategize and come up with ways of, of how do I help my client, but also you have to take care of yourself too. And make sure that, you know, you give yourself some leeway because you're not always going to win. You're not always going to win for your client. You know, and I'm curious to know, given your experience navigating just really complex uh, judicial and policy barriers at the state and federal level, you know, with that in mind, let's talk about civil rights generally in Texas. I mean, Texas's new election laws seem to be causing mass confusion this primary potentially jeopardizing the valid votes, uh, registered Texans. Rural communities still lack basic infrastructure like clean water. And from my understanding, the Texas power grid remains vulnerable. You know, there are a lot of issues facing Texans, and I'm curious to know, you know, what you believe is the most pressing civil rights issue in Texas at the moment. I mean, I I think generally all of those things that you listed, I mean, civil rights is at risk in Texas as a general matter, you know, voting rights, reproductive rights, these are, these are sort of the bedrock issues. If we're going to say that access to abortion care is a lesser civil right, that does put marriage equality at risk. That does put voting rights, every single right that you can think of is going to be put at risk. Um, It's important to keep this constellation of rights uh, because you know, we're going to see the erosion, we're going to see a domino effect. Um, You know, with regards to to voting rights in Texas, I mean, we're we're in a bad spot. You know, 
we're, we're looking at counties where 40%, 50% of their mail-in ballot requests have been turned away, have been, you know, I mean, there's a two-step program with the mail-in ballots. So you have to actually request the mail-in ballot. And if you didn't, if you didn't put the correct uh, ID number that you originally registered with, they send it back and reject it. Say you get the right number. When you get your ballot back, you have to put that same number. And sometimes people forget. And, uh, and so those are the ones that are getting rejected right now. That's what we're seeing. And, and really it's impacting people of color, um, you know, people with disabilities they are unable to actually get their ballots in. And we're already seeing really low voter turnout, unfortunately. So the suppression tactics are working. Um, but the role of the AG is, is so critically important to actually protecting those rights. You know, this is an independent executive position. The AG does not represent the governor or the lieutenant governor or the legislature. The attorney general actually is the attorney for the people of Texas. And the role is to protect the rights of Texans. And as an attorney, your duty runs to your client and it runs to the constitution. It runs to the Texas constitution, the U.S. constitution. And so this is something that a good AG, a non-corrupt AG, um, not under indictment AG, can, um, can actually address and, and, and fix and protect. So anyway, that, those are parts of my motivation. Um, you know, I do think that there needs to be a robust civil rights department through the AG's office that actually looks at voting rights, that looks at reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, disability rights, and worker protections. So actually having a robust office will uplift people and, and address a lot of these issues. You know, the Texas AG can, can partner with other AGs across the country and, and really protect people. You, you've seen it in, you know, payday lenders, for example, that are predatory. Uh, so there's so much good that can be done. It's just a matter of getting people to the polls, <laughs> fighting the suppression at the outset and, and, and getting a, a real good AG elected. We've talked a, a little bit, and I think you were starting to talk about how you would use the role of AG to advance civil rights in Texas and maybe some of the collaboration you would use with other attorney generals in the country. Can you speak a little bit about how you will build coalitions across um, the state, you know, within government, outside of government to tackle these civil rights issues head on? Yeah, this, this is probably my favorite question because... Uh, at my core, at my heart, I, I feel like I'm an organizer. Um, you know, I recognize that the people that are experiencing an issue know it the best and are able to contribute meaningfully to resolving the problem. So, I, you know, I mentioned having a robust, fully funded civil rights division, but within each of these units, uh, being able to uh, partner with different organizations across the state that... Um, actually provide input about the issues that the folks are facing, having that voice at the table and being able to contribute uh, not only the issues that they're facing, but help in shaping the solution is going to be critical. You know, I can think, oh, this is the, this is the solution to the problem. This is what's going to fix it. But if I don't hear from somebody who's actually experiencing it, I'm not going to know what the real effect 
of my advocacy or uh, my legal work is going to have on them. So I think it's really important to to bring all these voices to the table and collaboratively come to solutions. I think you are envisioning a really rich participatory form of government that I don't think all Texans have been able to enjoy um, these last couple of years. And I really applaud you for your vision and your imagination here, which I think brings me to my next question. I think I've always believed that to be a Latina in the legal profession and politics generally, you you do have to have a really large imagination because so often you have to envision yourself in spaces where you don't yet exist, Um, which I think maybe you know where I'm going with this next um, question, but obviously, you know, having the vision, the imagination, the courage to run for statewide office in a state that has never had a Latina hold statewide office is really brave. Um, and it's not lost on me and many others. And I don't think it's unrooted. I think you have the chop. So that's not what I'm getting at here. But what would you say to other Latinas wanting to positively impact their communities? Yeah. I, you know, I never thought I would ever run for office. That's not something I I thought was in my future. Um, I always wanted to eventually do civil rights work. So, so I've, I've checked that box. I made that happen. I elbowed my way into that space. You know, I think that if we don't start taking space and acknowledging that we have the skills, we have, we have the knowledge, we have the ability we have a voice, you know, we can do this. Why not? You know, if it's not me, then, then who? If not now, then when? So we have to take that space because no one is going to give it to us. Um, you know, I, I didn't anticipate I would end up running for, for anything, right? But the world led me to this position. You know, I, I was I was nine weeks pregnant when the six week abortion ban went into effect. This is my first baby. I'm very very happy. This is a very wanted child, and it's a little girl. On top of that, so you know, I felt like, look, if if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And if I don't fight for her, who's going to fight for her? And I'm and I'm frankly, I'm tired of of not seeing representation. There were no women running. There were no Latinos running. We're almost 40% of the state. That's ridiculous. We need to have a voice at the table because our issues need to be addressed. And, you know, my advice to other Latinas, other, you know, young Latinas, take your space and don't be, don't feel shame for it, you know, because you deserve to, to have your voice heard. And, and I'm, it's going to be hard. I mean, this has been a difficult experience <laughs> running for office. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's physically taxing. Uh, it's emotionally taxing. I mean, I just added another layer of just being super pregnant. <laughs> um, so travel is, is, is difficult. But, you know, I, I, I really think that if we want a better future, we're just going to have to we're just going to have to elbow our way into the restaurant and to a table and sit down. Bring up the chair, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I'm actually curious. What did, what did you think you would be doing? What, I mean, what, when you were graduating law school and what, I mean, what did you envision for your life? I was just worried about getting a job. 
Um, or, well, actually, no, I was worried about passing the bar first <laughs> and then getting a job. Um, I, I think it's just, it's a testament to like, you never know where you're going to end up. And, and I think that you always have to go back to your values and the things that matter to you the most. Um, and what mattered to me the most was the border. Like no one expects anything incredible to happen at the border. You know, we come from a community where no one expects people to be successful, much less make the kind of changes that I was lucky enough to be a part of um, and to help facilitate. So, you know, truly incredible things come from unexpected places. And uh, that could be a place, that could be a person, it, you know, we, we need to really see that and believe that for ourselves. I want to ask now, is that your campaign tagline? Truly incredible. <laughs> what was it? Truly incredible things come from unexpected places, otherwise known as the real Granny Valley. <laughs> Make a change. Make a change. So for listeners, I first met Rochelle crossing into Matamoros um, when the Remain in Mexico program was in place. Uh, it was uh, quite dark, to be honest, seeing people um, being impacted by U.S. immigration policy like that. Um, and, you know, I think after our talk, we were on the bridge crossing back into the U.S. And I think I asked you, how do you stay optimistic? Because at that point, you had really been in the trenches um, fighting immigration policies that were unjust. Um, and I'm going to ask you that question again. How do you stay optimistic and what makes you you know, optimistic about Texas's future and how do you stay focused on this vision? Um, I, I know I'd like to know, and I'm sure others listening would also like to know. Honestly, talking to people like you, talking to community members that, that care, uh, that's what makes me optimistic. I think a lot about what we were seeing during the Trump administration and just the, the horribleness of what was happening at the border, but there was so much love and kindness in the communities around me, in the people around me, um, and younger people like yourself, uh, not that much younger, but you know, <laughs> um, um, but I think, I think that maybe I get my optimism from, from other people and seeing the kindness that there exists in other people and other smart people. Um, you know, cause I think it's easy to, it's easy to get beaten down and, and, you know, some of us have just been beaten down and, but we've got to find something to hang on to. And it could be a kindness that someone says to you. It could just be a smile. It could be like someone actually going out of their way to help you. Uh, and I've had all of those things happen to me that have uplifted me, um, that have made me feel like I'm not alone in the world in my mission of, of trying to make this a better place. Uh, and so find those people, find the good people around you uh, because we can actually make real change if we come together and, and fight for it because too much is at stake, really. I guess I have one last question, which is, can you tell me about some of the good people you've met on the campaign trail? <laughs> <laughs> on the campaign trail. Yeah. Um, so there's been, you know, I've, I've never really 
talked a lot about my brother, Robbie, and just sort of my family's experience with that, just because it's felt so personal and um, private in a lot of ways. Uh, It's sort of like burying your soul and being able to go around the state and talk to people and share a very delicate part of myself with others has really brought people to me. Um, You know, I've had people come up to me after I've spoken and just tell me, you know, my family is going through this with my, my son who has disabilities and um, you know, having problems with access to, to healthcare or, you know, just, just everyday struggles. And I think that that, that has been a really incredible experience is being able to connect with people on a very human level about what they're experiencing. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that that's been really beautiful. I've also met a lot of characters. Um, (laughs) There are a lot of people with a lot of personality um, that, you know, even just like on Twitter, it's, it's hilarious. Just some of the people that are like messaging or like retweeting or making fan art, which is kind of hilarious to me, uh, but also very sweet. Um, but yeah, this has been a really incredible experience and, and really it's about the people that I've been meeting more than anything. Well, you make campaigning seem fun. It's just getting <laughs> to hang out with a bunch of Texans and all sorts of communities, listening to them, building community. So how, how could you lose? You know, it's a win-win. Um, do you have any final words you'd love to impart on Latino, future Latino policymakers and other listeners of our podcast? Yeah. I mean, I, I do, I, I didn't point this out, but, you know, polling in the state of Texas in this race looks really good. Um, you know, I've, in some polls I'm leading by, you know, 17 points, uh, which, is, which is a big lead for, for a Latina who is running on a statewide. And, and I think that the desire for something more, something different is there. So we'll see you how sense that, huh? it's, you sense that it's palpable. It is. It really is. Because I mean, in all of the polling that we've seen and all the feedback that we're seeing, I mean, just the, the, the kind of energy from people, plus the numbers, the data actually showing it and backing it up. I, I think that um, we shouldn't sell ourselves short. There's a desire to see people like us run for office and to and to be the policymakers, to be the change makers. Uh, and we shouldn't shy away from that. So don't be afraid to to, you know, throw your name in. I will help you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, before I conclude, I think I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that uh, in the Republican primary, there are two Latinos also running. One is you also have another Latina candidate. So there could be a universe in which this race is a Latino versus a Latino, which would still be very historic. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with this run. But thank you so much for your time. I'm very excited for you. It's so good to see you. And thank you for the wonderful words you have shared with me and our listeners today. Well, thank you, Victoria. Bye. The Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy is supported by the Harvard Kennedy School. Find us online on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our newsletter by going to hjhp.hkspublications.org.